You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. David, how are you? I'm well, Giles. I trust you're well. I trust all our listeners uh, are enjoying the podcast and and, uh, also well. Yes, no, it was great to have um, that many people listening in to our first broadcast of the year um, in 2021, and I'm um, going to be back with the second one. Now, we do have a really good interview that uh, you put in the bag um, a week or so ago, but before we do that, David, let's have a, just a quick run around on some of the news of the week, because things are starting to move forward. We've had a, um, gosh, BHP's just um, signed up a solar farm in um, WA, the biggest solar farm there, Meriden, it was really recently completed, it's now going to power one half of the um, electricity or provide one half of the electricity needs of its Quinana um, alumina, nickel refinery, sorry, nickel refinery in WA. Even Gina Reinhardt, one of the most um, strident opponents of climate and renewable energy policies, is going to sign up for a 30 megawatt solar plant to help power her Roy Hill iron ore mine, um, both of which I think are quite gratifying. I'm not too sure if it saves the world. But we've also heard, David, that uh, the renewables continue to roll out um, quite quickly. We've seen um, some really interesting assessments from AEMO. You've written a great piece of Renew Economy this week um, about... Well, that's, not my, that's not necessarily... I mean, I've written the piece, but I, I have to say the work for that is largely done by my colleague, uh, Ben Willisey, and, and ITK, uh, as a consulting service, has, re- has released a couple of serious reports, uh, of which they're just a teaser, but anyhow. Well, well, the point was made that there's going to be a lot of wind and solar coming into the grid. And then the question goes back to the politics. Now, since we last spoke, um, Mark Butler's been moved aside from Labor, replaced by Chris Bowen. We're not seeing Labor grab at any greater targets than what the Australian government is currently doing it. And we've really seen no commitment by Scott Morrison to do anything, despite all the efforts and the announcements from Joe Biden. Um, Where are we heading on this ground, David? Well, I think in electricity for a long time, federal policy has been uh, fairly irrelevant because, of course, there hasn't been any. Um, um, and so to that ex- and to the extent that the Labor Party, the main alternative federal party, is not offering any uh, significant policy at the moment, there's really nothing to comment about it. Um, uh, well, I guess I guess the question is, might we need some? After all, you're talking about this massive amount of wind and solar that's going to be connected to the grid over the next three years at the rate of more than 500 megawatts a month on average. Um, gosh, won't we need some other policy or will the actions of the institutions in forming new markets, you know, new market rules and other new um, um, things um, manage that transition? Well, we've known for years, Giles, and it's no secret uh, that everyone knows that if we had a proper federal policy, the whole thing would run more smoothly. And by that, I mean that whilst there's lots of action going on in electricity and the actions of many actors in the market, as we like to call them, that is householders, business owners, uh, institutional bodies, are all 
demonstrating by you know putting solar behind the meter and and other actions and consistent surveys that there's a lot of support for what needs to be done not universal support but a lot uh, and and if it was the federal government would coordinate it, uh, we would get a lot more done a lot more quickly. Was, I've said a zillion times, but I'm happy to keep saying that if we had a decent electric vehicle policy, it would be so good for so many people. It would be in Australia's national interest, but it would also help the electricity uh, sector uh, which is struggling with falling demand. All those coal and gas companies, uh, as well as utility solar and wind companies, nothing makes the price go up like a, uh, an increase in demand. Uh, and if, if you know, if we had a good electric vehicle policy, it could significantly contribute to demand, as could uh, uh, industrial electrification of some of the industrial processes. And you know, there are, tre- there are tremendous opportunities for Australian businesses. I mean, there are millions now of inverters in Australia. Uh, and you know, yet we still hear at the utility scale of in- inverted problems. I guess that's unsurprising. But, you know, there's lots of technology opportunities uh, that innovation funds and, and a more, di- I don't say directed, but a more encouraging approach could incentivise. Well, no, look, that is, um, that, that's exactly right. And uh, look, might, now might be the time to sort of go into the interview that um, you've done with um, Stephen Sproul from Hitachi. Um, what's the full name of the company, David? Uh, Hitachi ABB. Uh, so ABB is a, a European company. I'm, mm. I'm not so Swedish. Uh, 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 that's merged with Hitachi and they have a number of divisions. But uh, in this area of uh, grid forming inverters and virtual synchronous machines, uh, they're one of the leaders. Well, that's exactly right and these are one of the key technologies that are going to be deployed one presumes um, as we sort of shunt more coal and gas out of the generation so look here's your interview with um, Stephen Sproul and you started actually started off by talking exactly that issue about grid forming inverters and virtual synchronous machines and how they will replace those traditional schemes. Hi David thanks very much for having me and yeah very excited to talk about a a topic that's very close to my heart and and as you say I think it's going to play a a fundamental role in in um, getting to the levels of renewables in in Australia and also around the world. So thanks for your time. So I guess uh, the impetus for this conversation is is varied, but particularly I was drawn to looking for the post uh, 2025 market design documents released by the Energy Security Board at the very beginning of the year. I guess they hoped they thought everyone would be on holiday, or maybe it's just very busy. But it, it didn't seem to me that within that document or indeed within the integrated system plan that the system designers have any clear idea of what's how we're going to run the grid when the traditional inertia provided by the coal generators goes away. Um, I guess my question is, wh- where do you think the industry consensus is on, 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 on how that will be done? Yeah, look, the this is a space that's evolving very quickly. Um, when we look back to just the start of, of last year, um, grid-forming inverters, their backgrounds from off-grid power systems and, and really fulfilling the need of turning off the last few fossil fuel generators in a microgrid, and that's that's what grid-forming inverters or, or virtual synchronous machines, we can talk about the distinction there soon. Um, but it's only really during last year that we've been doing some more work with AEMO and, and there's been some more 
some more work in this space. So I, st I still think it's largely an unknown quantity by um, the broader the broader industry, but it is going to be something that needs to be introduced to the power system because um, you know it, it's required to to fix. We'll, we'll get to that last that last mile in in off grid systems, and the physics are the same. Um, it's just a little bit more of an abstract um, concept on the NEM, but we're going to have to have we're going to have to replace fossil fuel generators with grid forming inverters if we are to get to the 100% the level of renewable energy. So it's important we have this discussion. Yeah, no, I, I think it is uh, very important and very interesting. And I think it uh, offers tremendous opportunities uh, as well um, yeah, in, 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 in the but it does require, as far as I can tell, a completely fresh way of thinking about things. Why don't we start off uh, in the time that we have with just a, a little bit of a discussion about, uh, let's talk about a virtual synchronous machine, VSM. And uh, I think that basically consists of a battery and a grid forming inverter. Uh, could you just tell me quickly the difference between a grid forming and a grid following inverter uh, and what services a virtual synchronous machine basically provides uh, to the grid to which it's connected? Yeah, absolutely. So every solar renewable plant and just about every energy storage system to connected, connected to grids around the world are what we call grid following um, systems. And they, they depend on there being an underlying grid to follow. So um, they lock onto the existing grid and they follow the system and try and push energy onto the system to provide a service. Um, now that relies on one fundamental assumption that there is a grid signal to follow. And that's, that's the key piece that when we start removing fossil fuel generation, that signal becomes weaker and weaker and we will get to a threshold where there's nothing there to follow. And we're already seeing it in sections of the Australian grid when people talk about low system strength and the inability to connect renewables. That's because there's not enough synchronous generation in that area to provide a stable signal and renewables can't connect and follow that um, in a stable way. So they're either not connected or they're curtailed. Grid forming, on the other hand, as the name suggests, it, it forms a grid. So it's an inverter or a converter that sits in front of a, a battery or a, a flywheel or a supercapacitor, some other energy storage medium, and it can form a grid by setting the voltage and frequency. So as I mentioned before, these come from an off-grid context where you're trying to establish a, a power system. Now, virtual synchronous machines are the key the key piece to allow grid forming converters to connect to the grid because you can't have a grid forming inverter trying to set the frequency of the grid and you'll find that it'll just fight the grid and you can't get a harmonious um, interaction. So the virtual synchronous machine makes the grid forming converter behave like a synchronous generator in terms of its dynamic response, how it interacts with the grid. And it's really the key piece to allow you to connect a grid forming converter to the grid. Without that, you, you don't have a, a system that can operate well in parallel. So I hope that gives a little bit of insight without being too too over the top. 
I think we'll go over it a bit more as we go through. Uh, I've been reading about it a lot and uh, just as a financial analyst realised how little I know, but not that that was actually a big surprise. But uh, I think you t- in terms of a good signal, what we're really talking about more than anything is a, is a well-formed voltage waveform, isn't it? And I think this, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So grid forming, another way to look at it is the fossil fuel generators, coal, gas, diesel, spinning machines, they're independent voltage sources. So they provide all voltage waveform. And at the moment, renewables look for that voltage waveform and follow it. But as we disconnect those fossil fuel generators, the voltage signal can get weaker. Again, places like the West Murray region, North Queensland, because they're so far away from these synchronous generators, the signal's weak and there's there's challenges for renewables to follow. So grid forming converters are also an independent voltage source. So they enhance that signal. So they replace, they, they allow synchronous machines to switch off um, by replacing that robust voltage waveform. And according to a, a, a helpful diagram that I saw in a seminar you partly presented last year, um, these virtual synchronous machines uh, also provide virtual inertia uh, um, and and uh, f- frequency and fault current um, uh, th- through the various, I guess, power electronics devices, but pr- primarily the battery that are, that is actually uh, att- attached to them. Yeah so, yeah, so that's right. So, I mean, a battery is a voltage source as well, and then the converter in front of it um, can provide these services. And there's a distinction between, um, you know, traditional energy storage systems that are grid following. They can still respond very, very quickly. So that's one of the, the key benefits that you can um, provide primary frequency response very fast. Some people call that fast frequency response or FFR. So they can provide these services, but grid forming converters come at this challenge from a a slightly different angle because doing things faster and faster helps to compensate for the system that we've got and it becoming less stable by introducing more renewables, but it doesn't fix the fundamental underlying issues that you need to reinforce um, you know, you need to replace the services from synchronous machines such as such as inertia, such as fault current. Both systems can provide fault current, both grid forming and grid following. But because the grid following converters are reliant on a stable grid, they can't be always depended on to operate, um, you know, to not misfire because they're, they're having trouble following the waveform. But grid forming converters because they're independent they don't actually respond to the grid they do their own thing and their i guess interaction is a, is a consequence rather than it trying to um to respond to what the grid's doing so uh, i want to come back to grids and in fact the relationship between micro uh, grid forming inverters and virtual synchronous machines and what happens when you've got lots and lots of them around the place and the control scheme which is kind of my semi uh, science fiction way of thinking about it but can you tell me if you look around the world how how are Europe I guess uh, and perhaps the United States if you have any um, thinking thinking about you know, the thermal generators going away and, and how to replace it. Where does Australia stand in your view 
in the in, in preparing for this relative to other uh, jurisdictions and other networks? Yeah, so it's certainly an area that, that other countries are looking at more. We've had um, a few inquiries from the UK. Every, every system's got its own characteristics. So Australia is facing the system strength challenges because it is such a vast country with, with you know, sparsely populated load centres and, and renewables connecting quite far from load centres. So that system strength is a little bit specific to Australia at the moment, although others will face it in time. Um, there are regions like the the Panhandle in, in Texas, Ireland have got some similar challenges, but if we talk about the UK, that they've had interest in this more from an inertia perspective. So they do have some challenges around system strength in the north in, in Scotland, but it's really around inertia and they they operate quite a tight frequency band in, in the UK. So the, the benefits of virtual synchronous machines in being able to basically set an inertia. So inertia has typically been a physical characteristic of a spinning machine. You can't really change it too much. It's just the rotating mass and how it contributes during a rate of change of frequency event. But with virtual synchronous machines, you can actually set that parameter. Now in Australia, there's limits as to what you can set it in line with the rules, but the UK operating a tighter band can extract a lot more value from, from this technology. Um, so that's one thing I know, but grid codes are also catching up. So there are regions where you can't operate a grid forming inverter in parallel with the grid um, because they basically operate as a grid following when they're connected to the grid. And if the grid goes down, they have to switch modes and then back up the the site or the the load as a grid forming device. So any residential system, if you've got a system at home, it will operate as grid following. If the grid goes down, it will then switch modes and, and operate as grid forming to back up your house because again, you can't operate a, a power system without a grid forming device. So can, is it, I mean, do you, is there an engine, is there a consensus in the uh, at least one part of the engineering world, the you know what I might call the the group, is there a consensus about the way to replace uh, the loss of uh, thermal generation and, and the uh, services control services inertia and that it provides? Is, do we have a consensus on how to do that in in in, in a grid where there was weren't any rotating masses and let let's leave wind farms out of it? Look, the way my observation is we don't have a, a consensus at the moment, but the contributors, you know, they're shaped by their experience and where they come from. I think, you know, there's many microgrids around the world today that operate at 100% renewables with no synchronous generation. The South Australia Dalrymple BESS is an example that it can disconnect from the grid and, and provide the region indefinitely provided there's not a significant lack of wind resource but there's no spinning machines in that system and it can run 100% renewable. When we look at um, people with experience from the grid th there's a tendency at the moment just to try and do things faster and faster and if you can respond quicker you can compensate a little bit more for the for the system weakening and I think a good a good analogy when I was working in the UK was they were saying you know a modern fighter jet is inherently unstable if you compare it to a biplane of the past but if the control system in place is fast enough it can take very fast 
corrections and make sure it flies, which I agree to an extent, but you still need an engine, you still need the wings, you still need to form an aeroplane. And that's that's kind of similar to this case here. You can do things a lot quicker to get us further along the track, but at a point you will need to replace the underlying um, services that you get from a, a fossil fuel generator. And in terms of when I look at the microgrids and the various uh, present around the world and the microgrid symposiums, so a microgrid is something that uh, a small unit, I suppose, of, of, uh, of demand and supply that can operate by itself. Um, and and I look at all the work and it kind of still, it doesn't really, even though there are sort of discussion about uh, interlinked microgrids, there doesn't seem to be any discussion yet about how you could run very large grids uh, in a sort of... Um, without this uh, synchronous generation. I mean, it, it still seems to be very much an emerging area. In your mind, is it possible to run, you know, something with Australia's with 20 gigawatts of instantaneous demand uh, uh, with, without any spinning reserve? Well, certainly the well, spinning reserve's one piece, but I guess, you know, there is, so there is, some quite large off-grid systems that do. Um, so there's some systems in the Pilbara that they operate on the last um, gas generator. And when that trips, it's fully supplied by energy storage. It's still a it's still a question of economics. So that energy storage is quite short in duration, but it buys time to start another generator. There's other networks that are still, you know, hundreds of megawatts that rely um you know, primarily on non-synchronous generation. Um, so when people talk about microgrids and think, you know, a few a few hundred kilowatts, there are quite large systems, but there is still challenges when you look at um, the NEM having, you know, a very wide area network and the the ability to to operate such a system with with no synchronous machines. Fault current is one aspect that's um, you know, you get quite a high fault current contribution from from a synchronous machine. Power electronics less so. Um, so that's still a, a piece to to be resolved. But the the physics doesn't change. A lot of the challenge is just we've got a large, um, you know, the incumbent system's large and and operates on various different um, processes and settings and. While, whilst it's possible to get to the end goal, it's how we sort of step that through in a, a cost-effective and pragmatic way because some systems will have to be upgraded if there's you know, lower fault currents, for example, or um, these kind of um, aspects. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure if that answered your question, but there is still work to do. Um, but I think... The... It, it, it sort of points me along the way, and um, I want to come back to... You know the, where we started the uh, market design and, and how it should be set up to move towards an end goal, and that's that's a complex topic. But let me just start by as we've, we've said, there are some quite large uh, microgrids around the place, and Australia's got some of those with its off-grid uh, power systems, which are now mm -hmm. using grid-forming inverters, and I think. You probably wouldn't build one of those today without using a grid former inverter and a virtual synchronous machine. But 
uh, it's the question of how they cooperate with each other. I mean, again, in my imagination, we've got lots of these community batteries sitting around in various streets or suburbs and batteries on people's houses. And there are thousands, perhaps, of grid-forming inverters at one uh, level or another, or perhaps even tens of thousands if every house had a battery. Uh, how do they all sort of cooperate with each other? And how's the sort of thinking about that uh, is there much work going on in that space? Yeah, well, the the virtual synchronous machine software or layer, the, one of the key reasons you have that is to allow operation in parallel with other voltage sources. So a grid forming converter on its own is very good at, you know, backing up your house, but it's not good at operating in parallel with a diesel generator or the grid. And it's it's that virtual synchronous machine layer that both allows that, you know, allows it to be coupled to other voltage sources, such as the grid, such as operate in parallel with a gas or diesel generator. Um, and it can also be tuned. So if you connected one, a large scale in front of the meter system today, you would go through the, the GPS um, process and configure that system to give you the, the desired response. When we start to talk about many of these systems, I think that's, and especially at a community level, that's a little bit of a different um, question in terms of how you manage all of those settings. However, I would say that there is a important aspect to this in that the system is tunable on that virtual synchronous machine layer. So the dynamic response you get can be tuned. And I think everybody can see that, you know, the power system we've got today is not going to be the power system we've got in five years or 10 years. So that ability to retrospectively, you know, update the system will be quite important because um, anybody's best guess today is still not going to be um, where we end up. So we need that. We need to bake that flexibility in. I agree with that uh, pretty strongly, I think. Um, and I get, it seems, though, if I look at what happened in the West Murray, that you can actually tune uh, grid following inverters as well. Perhaps you could just talk about the concept of tuning generally. Is that like software that does that? For instance, can you have an automated piece of software that uses voltage as transactive energy, uh, as I read somewhere, and, and just sort of, you know, automatically uh, a, a, a adjusts in the same way as, as an automatic inertial, virtual inertial response, which is a voltage-based response? I, I, you know, I'm talking like financial analyst here. Maybe you could spell it out in three-letter words for me. Yeah, so I mean, the with the West Murray situation, so there were solar inverters that, that had trouble following, you know, out the box with the settings. They had trouble following the, the grid waveform in that region because it had low system strength. So there is still improvements that can be done to grid following um, inverters. And what was done there was in software. And it's basically the, the control loops when they, when they measure the voltage and frequency where they're connecting and how they follow the grid waveform by making those control loops faster or slower or, or playing with some parameters in the software layer, they were able to get a more stable response. So that's certainly a, a solution to support us. But again, it, it will get us further, but it, there comes a point where you've got to have that underlying signal to follow. So there has to be something setting it. Another solution to such a, a challenge is at the moment synchronous condensers, which are putting in a large spinning machine next to the renewables. So again, that 
stabilizes the voltage waveform, provides fault current when there's an issue, and generally enhances the, the voltage waveform to allow the renewable plant adjacent to it to, to stay connected. Grid forming converters are, are the other solution and they perform a similar function to the synchronous condenser, but then you've got energy storage behind it that you can do other services with. So you can then shift the energy, you can participate in FCAS, you can do other revenue generating functions. So that's, that's an important um, point there. Uh, and I'm not sure just at the end when you said about, was it like auto... Well, it's just like when you uh, when you talk about the tuning. I mean, uh, that happens with uh, whether it's grid following or, or let's say it's virtual synchronous machine that we're talking about. So grid yep. forming inverter with let's say it's a battery as an energy source. Just talk about, talk to me briefly, and I won't understand a word about what the actual tuning process uh, involves. I mean, is it automated by the software? I mean, is itself or is does an operator sit there and you know, flick switches and dials, what actually happens? Yeah, no, so this is usually done during the during the connection process. So an example might be at, for the Dalrymple system, we, we set the, um, the system up to provide um, a certain amount of inertia to meet in, in South Australia. There's a three hertz per second requirement that basically if the if the frequency moves that much, we need to then provide our full output of um, of power to support the power system. So these are set when the system's connected, but then in that case, we also had to respond within 250 milliseconds to a protection scheme they've got in place in South Australia to help protect the, the, um, the interconnector. So if the interconnector potentially could be overloaded all energy storage within South Australia has to respond um, its full rating or 90% of its rating within 250 milliseconds. So what the process would be is there'd be modeling to put different settings into the model to address all the competing, um, I guess, objectives to, to deliver multiple services. Um, you know, if you set the inertia too high, then it might resist that quicker change. If you set it too low, it, it's just a, a bit of an iterative process to, to get the overall desired and um, performance. But like we said before, if the power system change, that, you know, the desired performance may shift and then be able to retrospectively update that, do another round of studies and, and update the parameters to then react to the system that we've got tomorrow, not, you know, set up for the system we've got today. But a lot of people who'd sort of say, well, that's fine for one and we don't even mind paying some super specialist engineer to do another set of studies. But, uh, you know, if we've got a million of these systems, we're going to need a more sophisticated bit of uh, adjustment that, that doesn't require all these people. Is there any work going on? And so, that, you know, the adjustment's automatic, uh, the way I think about it. Uh, yeah, it's easy in my head, Stephen. But uh, uh, what's happening in that space? Yeah, look, I'm I'm less um, I'm less involved in the the smaller scale, you know, higher volume systems. I know before I joined ABB, I was in in California working on the um, Rule Twenty One, which is a interconnection standard and has some similarities to, to AS Four Triple Seven. So there is certainly uh, um, work to do there where they were um, looking at retrospectively updating firmware and how you'd have access to um, you know residential rooftop inverters or behind the meter energy storage to basically have 
probably not as um, sophisticated settings as, as what we were talking about a moment ago, but you know, certain operating curves that might get varied um, or some settings changed. But ultimately, yeah, from a logistical point of view, you want the systems to be fairly autonomous, but then be optimized by any overlaying um, any overlaying what they call DERMs, which is a distributed energy resource management system or some sort of um, orchestration. I know there's more work being done by EMO, how they how they control this now, very large behind the meter resource and make sure that they can still manage the system. So there's going to be a bit of a, a bottom up and top down approach required there. It does seem to me like there's a lot of work required in the area and it's work that Australia needs to be at the forefront of because we do have such a large system and because we can so clearly see that economically uh, the coal generators are going to go away. Um, and, and yet uh, it, it doesn't, I mean, I don't feel even talking to you who probably knows more about it than than, than most other people, that there's a really big concerted push, you know, or even much government funding. But let me just put that to one side at the, or even much of a university level push, you know, when I look at some of the studies that have been done in Finland and places and uh, 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 to, to, to really make it happen. But um, can I just talk a little bit more about the market design then and, and frequency control well, ancillary services markets, if we say that that was an overall consensus that this was how we were going to, this is where we wanted to end up, what's the kind of uh, design or market that we need um, um, to, to, to actually move us in, in that direction? And, and after, you've, after you've had a quick think about that, I'm going to ask another question, which is whether this sort of separation of networks from generators, uh, from transmission companies is going to provide us with, you know, if we're not sort of um, hurting things by splitting it up into too many micro markets instead of looking for more holistic uh, solutions. But but uh, let's talk about the market design generally. Yeah, look, the, it's, it's not my area of expertise, but uh, I guess high level, you know, markets have been set up for for energy services and and we're at a point now where where renewables are, are very good at providing energy but there's some power system stability aspects that were a given with with traditional generators that that are no longer a given and there, there needs to be some way to incentivize um, you know the the connection of more of these systems because at the moment grid forming converters you could you could use that to support a renewable connection in an area of low system strength. But other than that, there's no, that's still not a way to monetize it. That's just a way to avoid, um, you know, not getting connected or perhaps pursuing another technology. But at let the me, moment. Let me yeah. interrupt there, Steve, and just ask about cost. I mean, nearly every inverter that's put onto a, um, to, to a solar farm, let's say, uh, is a grid following inverter. And I think that would yep. be true even today. Mm -hmm. um, uh, does it cost a lot more to have a, a grid forming inverter, which right now you couldn't really get any extra benefit, but you might avoid some cost because you could provide some local system strength. Is that the way to think about it? 
yeah, you, you can't really get any value from the grid forming converter itself other than allow supporting connection on an area of low system strength. And then it's it's the energy storage behind it that you can monetize. But whether it was a grid following BES or a grid forming BES, the the monetization's the same. It's the FCAS market primarily in Australia at the moment, and then some um, energy shifting as well. So the, the cost difference between between a grid forming and grid following, I mean, it's re it's just a difference in in software or firmware and how it operates fundamentally. But typically, grid forming converters are a bit more expensive because they have other hardware attributes. So the higher overloads to provide fault current that has a hardware implication and hence a cost implication. Um, so there can be an, a higher cost there. But again, it depends on the application because if you can put in less of these grid forming converters because they can do higher overload. So what I mean there is typical grid following converter might be able to do 120% its rating um, if it needs to, whereas grid forming converters are, you know, two to three times. So if you're not using that two to three times, then it's more expensive. But if you are using that to install less assets, it can it can work out similarly. Um, but yeah, it's it's a little bit swings and roundabouts there as to what's more expensive. The the actual software, apart from the R and D costs, they've you know it's been recouped. There's not a lot lot of difference there between the converters. But there's no market essentially for grid forming services, uh, but there is likely to be if we look at what uh, the AMC is thinking about now, a, a market for fast frequency response. And as I understand it, um, either a grid following or a grid forming inverter could provide that fast frequency response and provide, uh, enter into that market. But, but but in the end, the, the fast frequency response, if I'm to believe that uh, your view of the world, uh, won't get us all the way. So there needs to be an additional market. Yeah, that's right. So both grid forming and grid following can do fast frequency response. And um, the, and I mean, don't get me wrong, that that's a great, you know, we have a six second market in Australia. Energy storage systems can respond in hundreds of milliseconds. So it, it really starts to compensate for you know more renewables and a less stable network but it still just takes what we have further it's still not addressing the underlying issue so you, you're right that you know that market will help get us further but again synchronous condensers don't have any way to monetize their benefit I mean there's a lot going in um, to help deliver system strength and inertia, but there's no way to monetize that. And that's kind of the same with the grid forming converters. Their actual services can't be monetized. It's just the services that all energy storage systems can do that can be monetized. So you're not going to get, you know, developers or um, proponents are going to look for the most cost effective solution to, to access these markets. And although there's extra services that you could get, you can't monetize those at present. So, you know, when I think about that, I think it's up to the AEMO, in a sense, to come up with a future network uh, topology if, uh, and control system uh, design that with an endpoint in mind rather than just a, a series of uh, band-aids to prop up the existing system and passing it on, kicking the can further down the road, which is what I personally think we're doing at the, mo at the moment. 
having said all that, uh, how is the grid-forming inverter market and virtual synchronous machine market looking? Uh, is your uh, business uh, growing? Yeah, well, I, again, just just to, to finish off on your last point very quickly, I think faster responding resources are part of the puzzle. It won't all be grid-forming. Um, they certainly need to play a role, but it will be, you know, it'll be a mix. So I think the first and foremost to, to get those faster responding assets is still important. And I also think it's important that some of those can be, you know, retrospectively upgraded to grid forming when we get to the higher levels of renewables. Um, but in terms of the grid forming converter market, um, certainly, like you said before, any any off-grid system today, you, you probably wouldn't pursue a non-grid forming converter because it will be a limiting factor in in the future as you get to higher levels of renewables um, and the same in terms of the, the the services it offers so there's there's more projects coming um, we can't announce any at the moment but um, not too far away there's some some quite good projects in the pipeline so I think it's encouraging and and I'm hoping that a lot of the learnings from the off-grid space can can contribute to, to getting the NEM further along because the physics isn't different. It's a bit more complex because there's there's more interconnected systems. But um, you know some of these fundamentals we've spoken about today they they don't change, so they need to be resolved. Well, uh, Stephen, it's been a fascinating conversation. As I said, it's going to be one of my theme topics uh, for this year. Of, uh, it's probably about time to wind it up. But have, have you got any uh, closing comments you, you'd uh, you'd like to make? No, look, just appreciate the time because I think first and foremost, it's not a well understood topic and, and I I myself, I get excited by all the large announcements in terms of energy storage projects, but I'm hoping we can um, talk more about grid forming converters and virtual synchronous machines because they will be a key enabler for us to getting to near 100% and 100%. So um, yeah, happy to to answer any questions and, and look forward to, to where we are in a year's time. So thanks again, Stephen. Cheers. Thanks, David. And that was Stephen Sproul from Hitachi ABB. Look, fascinating stuff, David. Um, we've heard talk about these different technologies. And if you talk to the battery manufacturers, they're pretty excited about it and other people are pretty excited about it. But is the Australian system ready to envelop it and, and embrace it? Well, as I said, as we discussed in the interview, really, we, we I think some more leadership from AEMO in this case uh, uh, would be helpful. Now, one of the issues that we have at the moment is that uh, we've yet to get a new permanent head of AEMO. Um, and, and you know, it's uh, uh, the uh, controller and runner of the system and at the very centrepiece of everything that happens. And uh, we talk a lot about rules, but in the end, it's the technology that will drive the rules, not the other way around, as far as I can tell. And the technology is continuing to change and evolve. And Australia has the opportunity to be at the very forefront of this. But I would argue that uh, even though some people have done some great efforts, like uh, uh, we've seen down at Dalrymple Bay uh, in South Australia, that, which was discussed briefly on that podcast, uh, in that interview, uh, you know, by and large, we're, we're perhaps not keeping up with uh, Europe and the USA in terms of um, uh, the the innovation and investment in technology that we need. Well, therein lies an issue because um, we are leading um, in the share of wind and solar, particularly in some institutions, um, some local grids like um, 
like South Australia, and uh, that's going to be the case in New South Wales. Um, interestingly, seeing some sort of developments in New South Wales, uh, Transgrid is actually sort of starting its community engagement with um, for its first renewable energy zone. We've got um, someone coming in and um, setting up a pumped hydro, or, or sort of buying the rights to a pumped hydro scheme. Um, some interesting things still happening out there. Well, you know, you mentioned we're a leader. We are the now amongst all significant countries, significant economies, the world leader in solar per capita, you know, in terms of installed. We've, uh, according to Warwick Johnson, who does a great job on looking at this stuff uh, from Sunwiz, uh, we've now got more, more than Germany having started well behind and there's absolutely no sign of it slowing down. But we don't have a system that is going to give us uh, an incentive to keep installing utility solar because at the moment rooftop solar essentially even though it's supplying nine percent of total supply at the moment that's 24 hours a day when the sun's only shining for some of it rooftop is doing nine percent of total solar of total supply and but it's still not properly integrated in, into the overall system that that effort's lagging a bit as well so there's there's a lot to be done giles there is a lot to be done, particularly when the forecasts are for rooftop solar to actually treble in the amount that it contributes to the grid. So we could be up to 30% by the end of this decade, if not more. So um, absolutely. Um, anything else to quickly wrap up, um, David, before we sign off? Well, you mentioned federal politics and, you know, there are signs that uh, uh, Scott Morrison is trying to edge towards this this 2050 commitment. He, he in his own way, has got just as many problems as, as the Labor Party. I mean, he, he, you know, it's hard for him to introduce new policies. The Labor Party can't introduce any. I mean, the, the Labor Party just doesn't cut through on this issue at all at the moment. Uh, uh, and that's because they, they don't really, in my opinion, understand it. Uh, the unions need to uh, get a lot more behind it. I mean, again, it just requires a national consensus. It's, it, most of these things come down to leadership at summer. And we've seen that in New South Wales, you know, um, where, where you get a bit of leadership on the issue and all of a sudden you can make a lot of progress in a big hurry and, and actually get everyone behind you. So it's just like a, a bomb waiting to go off in the sense that it's just waiting for, the, for the, someone to light the fuse at a federal level who actually gets it. But, you know, the lack of vision is, is very uninspiring. Uh, uh, you know, it's, dis, it's dispiriting at the moment. Well, it is, and we are probably going to have to find a better analogy than bomb going off. But anyway, um, we do get your we do get your point, um, David. I think we're going to call that a wrap for today. Um, look, thank you very much for that interview um, with Stephen Sproul. That was fantastic. Um, thank you very much to all the listeners. Uh, do check out our new multimedia section on Renew Economy, which is kind of evolving as um as as we speak. And also, thank you very much to our sponsors, of course, Pylon and Evergen. Uh, thanks for sticking with us um, in the new year, and we'll be back again next week just before we go giles uh, i'd invite all the listeners to have a look at the website if they haven't this year i think it's had a bit of a refresh and uh, uh looking a bit better all the better for it isn't it well i'm hoping so and i'm hoping that's what the readers think and i hope it inc- you know, leads to a wonderful and dramatic increase in readership and uh, feedback anyway we'll see how it goes do please have a look and uh, we'll be back again next week and let us know what you think energy insiders was brought to you by evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future.
Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.